Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, June 10th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story is A Closer Look, Meet a Leader You Should Know. Neil Vogel, CEO, Dot Dash Meredith, by Michael Crum. Six months after Interactive Corp's Dot Dash bought Meredith Corp in a $2.7 billion deal that created the merged company Dot Dash Meredith, Neil Vogel is excited about the opportunities that lie before him and the rest of the leadership team. They've transitioned from running what Vogel said was a, quote, very small, not particularly relevant piece of IAC to the biggest print and digital publisher in America in six years, end quote, a run he described as being a very wild ride. Vogel oversees a company that currently has over 3,700 employees, including about 700 in Des Moines. There are nearly 2,000 employees in the company headquarters in New York City and about 150 in Birmingham, Alabama. Dot Dash Meredith also has employees in Los Angeles, Chicago, Seattle, Canada, and London. The business record sat down recently with Vogel to learn a little bit about him, what Dot Dash Meredith's future may hold, and what changes are being made. Tell us a little bit about your family's ties to Des Moines. My wife is from Des Moines. She grew up in Albuquerque, but her whole family is from Des Moines. Her dad was a starting offensive lineman at the University of Iowa in the late 60s. My Des Moines roots are pretty deep. I got here and knew a lot more about Des Moines and Iowa City than people would have expected. It's great. I love it here. Her family is in town still. This is not foreign territory to me. Share with us your career path that brought you to your current role. I was an investment banker for a while, mostly in media, hotels and restaurants, and consumer stuff for six or seven years. Then I joined a client that was a very Internet 1.0 business marketing service for teenagers and young adults. We did tons of online stuff. We had a pretty good run there. It was a crazy time. We went public and raised a whole bunch of money. After five or six years, I left. So with a partner, we rolled up and bought a whole bunch of different industry award shows. Eventually, we sold it to private equity. And around that time, I left and was sitting at a venture capital place in New York called First Mark Capital, where I was a venture partner. Then the guys at IAC called about about about.com And that was about 2012 or 2013. IAC bought About.com in 2012. About.com became Dot Dash in 2017. It was a big mess. We are really bad at it for a couple of years, but in the process of being really bad at it, we learned a lot. If you are running anything and if you've got 10 decisions and you get six or seven things right, you're in great shape. We just did all the wrong things first and did the right things after. So we learned from the wrong things to do the right things. We realized this general internet thing wasn't working. So we eventually launched our own brands and they grew like crazy. And then we started to buy some brands and they grew even faster. 
What about Meredith made it an attractive acquisition for DotDash? We have had a lot of success that we literally invented and turned them into some of the biggest brands on the internet. So the thesis was, imagine what we could do if we got our hands on better homes and gardens and people, real simple, food and wine and travel and leisure, to name a few. Our thesis was, we know what we can do with print. There's other guys that have done some things that make some sense to rationalize print, and we absolutely know what we can do with digital. The question is, can we handle the scale of all this because they're three times our size? What changes are being made? What we decided was our basic standard was we can't make any magazines that people are not willing to pay for. And if we have magazines are, that are losing money and don't have hope, you don't need them anymore. Magazines aren't going away. They just have to evolve. How many titles were eliminated? Seven print were eliminated, but all live digitally. I'm not trying to spin it because it costs 200 jobs. It was an unpleasant thing to do, but we do have 4,000 other employees that are relying on us to make good decisions. We cannot put all our investment dollars into things that are losing money out of sentimentality. We were fairly unsentimental with it. If it wasn't going to work and if it didn't work, we just got rid of it and we did it quickly. We're going to have fewer magazines, but we're going to make them better. We're not going to be distracted and spend all our time trying to turn around things that are not workable. How are those changes affecting the publications you are keeping? What you can do is invest heavily online. We bought brands. We didn't buy magazines. We didn't buy websites. We bought brands. We knew coming in what we were going to do. We had a plan. We don't need any new skills to make what we think can be very successful. If we focus on books that people are willing to pay for, and they have a real subscriber base that is really willing to pay, which is people, travel and leisure, better homes and gardens, real simple, food and wine, all recipes, magnolia, southern living, if we focus on those and our best people working on those, we are actually seeing in our six months we made decisions very quickly, a little mini renaissance in print. But for us, the vast majority of our profitability doesn't come from print, but there is nothing that can replace the branding and market presence of a print magazine when people want it. They have a place in the cultural fabric. They're feature-driven. They're visually driven. Brands live differently in different places, and one thing we've done is we've completely separated workflows. Print is something. Digital is something. Social is something. If you're people, the print cover and print audience is very different than online. And it's very different on TikTok. But it still fits the people mold. But we have to understand that there are different audiences in different places that the brand can mean the same thing for. What is the future of Dot Dash Meredith's Des Moines campus? We would hire as many people as we possibly can here. We're changing up what happens here. Downstairs, we have test kitchens and photo studios and video studios. We've pivoted that from shooting for magazines to now we're doing tons and tons of product testing for our brands here. We've got hundreds and hundreds of open roles that we can fill here, fill in Birmingham and New York. 
We're doing everything we can to hire people. We love this place. What will Dot Dash Meredith's philanthropic role be in the community? As of right now, nothing's changing. We haven't been here long enough to put our imprint on what we would do differently. All of our commitments are the same. We may tweak one or two. IAC has a very sophisticated charitable giving operation, and the things we are super interested in are the basic community building things here. And we are very interested in skills and activities that help underrepresented groups. We're going to do a lot with young people. We approach things with an amount of rigor. A lot of what we measure is the effectiveness. Does it help the community raise money? Does it help us get more diverse? Does it help us grow our presence in Des Moines? If there's things that don't, we might pivot out of them, but we don't have any grand plan to change anything soon. Describe your management philosophy. Direct. Extremely informal and very rigorous, and hopefully approachable. Much of the current senior team grew up not in traditional corporate America. Most of us are entrepreneurs who grew up on the digital side, so there's not a lot of the hierarchical stuff. We're very present. We're very informal. We try to tell people what we're doing over and over and over again. We're very fast decision makers. We'd rather make a decision and move forward and be wrong and get the data point than not make the decision. We say all the time, we're going to happen to things. Things are not going to happen to us. And everything is baked into that. You have to reframe what success and failure is. Failure is not doing anything. Dot Dash succeeded by failing. We did everything wrong, and we learned from it, and then it worked. What makes you tick? First, I love it. I love the internet. I love the media. We love proving people wrong. At Dot Dash, we've always had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. We were outsiders. We were like outside cats. We live outside, but let us inside the house. We're in the house now, and, frankly, we weren't used to having brands of this stature and power. We have to grow up. We were like babies, and now we're teenagers on the borderline of becoming adults. It's also hard when you've had success doing one thing to do something different. By and large, the same people who are in charge now doing something extremely different are the same people in charge when we were struggling at about.com trying to figure it out. All these people, they were all the same people that were here when we were like, we can't figure this thing out at all. Now they're the same people who are running better homes and gardens. What do you want our audience to know about what you hope to accomplish in Des Moines? I hope that we can be the biggest media and publishing company in the world, with brands people are incredibly proud of, and in an environment to work in that people really love. None of them are mutually exclusive, and they're all tied together. We can have a real cultural impact here with our brands, with the way we work and the way we treat people. Neil Vogel at a glance. Age, 52. Hometown, New York. Family, married with two children, ages 8 and 3. Education, 
degree in finance from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. From the Iowa Stops Hunger column, Gardening for the Community. Editors note this story first appeared in the May-June issue of DSM Magazine, our sister publication. During spring workdays at Des Moines' two community gardens, dreams of three-pound heirloom tomatoes, gourmet salad greens, shishito peppers, and other exotic vegetable varieties are planted for gardeners to enjoy. And thanks to a budding volunteer program, Extra just-picked produce is going to neighbors facing food insecurity. Last year, growers donated more than 910 pounds of produce. Operated through Des Moines Park and Recreation, the 209 garden plots in the two community gardens, Franklin Avenue and Woodland Park, are available for residents to rent for $30 for the season. That includes 150 square feet of growing space, plus compost, mulch, and water and tool access. Part of the agreement is a volunteer requirement, including coordinating food donations, assisting other gardeners, and maintaining communal spaces, such as a pollinator garden. Eva Button, an Iowa State University sophomore studying horticulture, is planning to grow more this year in her Franklin Community Garden plot to help feed her neighbors through the donation program. She and her mother, another gardener at Franklin, started growing extra seeds in March to boost their harvest with the intention of giving. They also plan to share extra seed starts with fellow Franklin gardeners in hopes of more shared success. Cassandra Moore Cassandra Monroe, a coordinator with the Food Rescue Program last year, is another college student with the gardening bug. Last year, the Grandview University student delivered batches of produce, such as squash, tomatoes, and more, to Sweet Tooth Community Fridge at 1618 6th Avenue. Some of the plots in the city's community gardens are reserved for refugees. Our program strives to be culturally inclusive, said Callie Liao, Courtright with Des Moines Parks and Recreation. Through a partnership with Lutheran Services in Iowa, we support gardeners from communities around the world who have resettled in the Des Moines metro, she said. To learn more about Des Moines' program, email community-garden at dmgov.org or call 515-248-6383. More Ways to Garden for Food The nonprofit organization Eat Greater Des Moines has a community garden support program. To learn more and find a useful startup guide on community gardening, call 515-207-8908 or visit Eat Greater Des Moines Dot org. Iowa Gardening for Good, located on a farm near Madrid, Iowa, grows around 150,000 pounds of vegetables annually that they donate to Iowa food banks and pantries. Volunteer opportunities include planting, harvesting, and delivering produce. More info can be found at iowagardeningforgood.com.
Lutheran Services in Iowa's Global Greens program provides refugees with garden plots to grow culturally appropriate food, not only to feed their families, but also to sell through farmers markets and a community-supported agriculture program. Learn more about how you can support that program and the refugee farmers at lsiowa.org forward slash refugee forward slash global dash greens. Our next story, record high diesel prices add to headwinds for manufacturers, carriers. Companies wrangle with seesawing demand, inflationary pressures. By Joe Gardiaz. Every business day at Van Gorp Corp in Pella, pallets of conveyor assemblies, pulleys, and other parts manufactured there are trucked out to customers across the United States and numerous other countries, primarily in the Western Hemisphere. The manufacturing company, founded in 1933, specializes in supplying engineered conveyor system components. Van Gorp's customers include a broad range of industries, from agricultural processors that use all types of conveyors for produce and grain handling, applications to mining and energy companies that use its conveyor pulleys to move ore and coal. Fuel and freight costs are an increasing concern for manufacturers and logistics companies that transport raw materials and finished goods to and from manufacturing plants. The per-mile cost of hauling freight has nearly doubled over the past five years. At Van Gorp's operation in Pella, total transportation costs have increased by as much as 25% in the past year, said Joe Canfield, the company's owner and CEO. As a percentage of total costs, transportation expenses account for about 7% of the company's budget considering both the costs of shipping goods by truck domestically and via container ships internationally. When I look at the baseline of incoming costs for freight, the fuel surcharge is what's really starting to add up for me, Canfield said. Fuel surcharges are typically added on to freight contracts on top of the negotiated rate to protect the carriers from the effects of volatile markets. And on outbound freight for shipping out finished products, quote, we have some customers with negotiated contracts, longer term contracts where we provide the product prepaid. So we pay the freight growing to these customers. And that really starts to impact the profit margin that we're making on those accounts, end quote. As of mid-May, diesel prices nationally were averaging $5.62 per gallon, a 171% increase from the average price a year ago and a 244% increase from the average in 2016, according to data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. The lion's share of the movement has been in the last 12 months or so, said Jeremy Spillman, CEO of Toggle, Inc., The Des Moines-based software startup company he founded is currently testing a blockchain-driven digital freight management system it developed, with a goal of driving new efficiencies into how independent carriers operate. Spillman's team of third-party logistics experts have long-term relationships with shippers that include Van Gorp, as well as small independent trucking companies across the United States. 
The significant spike in diesel prices has nearly doubled the cost per mile for freight compared with five years ago, Spillman said. So when you're breaking down the cost for a truck to be on the road, what used to cost 35 cents a mile in 2016 is now costing just over 86 cents a mile, he said. That equates to probably an extra $300 just in fuel costs on a 1,000-mile run. So obviously, you're seeing a lot of pressure going to the driver and how to reconcile this and how to charge efficiently, he said. There are two different markets for shippers. The spot market, in which they're engaging for freight services at current pricing, and the contract market, in which a shipper locks in a, quote, dedicated lane, end quote, for regular shipments for a set period of months. Fuel fuel surcharges are imposed in conjunction with contract rates to make up for market differences from the time the contract was set. If you have inflated costs in fuel, ultimately the person holding the bag for it is going to be the shipper or the consumer, Spillman said. The shipper is going to take the brunt of that initially, but then they're going to pass that cost on to their consumers who are buying the product. We are seeing that domino effect kind of trickle through the markets right now, he said. While manufacturers used to be able to request a one-year contract, Spillman said, right now it's so volatile that carriers are pushing back, saying, I can give you three months, that's it. There is so much volatility out there that even the fuel surcharges don't seem to be taking care of all of the costs associated with what we're seeing in the supply chain breakdown. Much of the price volatility has been driven by surges and lulls in freight movements over the past months, Spillman noted. We saw a huge ramp-up in available freight to move last summer, and now obviously we've cleared the congestion off the West Coast, he said. Now, with the COVID lockdowns in Asia, you're starting to see all those ships stack up waiting for pickup. So even if the fuel costs are high, the supply of product to move is down because of what we're seeing in Asia, Spillman said. So you have these two things really working in gridlock with each other. This is that pendulum that's going to continue to swing back and forth and cause a lot of heartache and headache for shippers for the foreseeable future, he said. The American Trucking Association tracks tonnage figures for U.S. freight transportation on a monthly basis. On average, trucking carriers handle 72.5% of tonnage carried by all modes of domestic freight transportation, including manufactured and retailed goods, according to the ATA. The ATA's most recent For Hire Truck Tonnage Index, which is seasonally adjusted, decreased 2% in April after rising 1.8% in March. In April, the index equaled 115.8 versus 118.2 in March. In the index, 100 equals the 2015 average level. After eight straight gains totaling 6.9%, four higher tonnage finally slid back in April, said Bob Costello, the association's chief economist. Despite being the largest sequential drop since August 2020, the index was still above where it started in 2022 and a year earlier, he said. 
In a press statement in late May, Costello said the market is transitioning back to pre-pandemic levels of contract shipments as compared with the spot market. While I expect contract freight to outperform spot market freight, the rate of growth will be slower than in 2021. Most contract carriers are still struggling with maintaining enough capacity, both equipment and drivers, Costello said. Asked if price volatility could put some smaller carriers out of business, Spillman said demand volatility is the biggest threat. I would say the thing that could jeopardize the existence of smaller trucking companies right now is how freight is drying up in the short term because of the lack of supply coming in from Asia, he said. And then in a few months, once they get all the ships filled up and they come back, then we get walloped all over again. So the truckers are going to ask for an even higher amount this next round because they don't know what the next swing is going to look like. That's what's going to continue to drive costs even higher outside of the rising fuel costs, he said. From Canfield's perspective at Van Gorp, high freight costs are, quote, just one more thing, end quote, on top of a host of higher operational costs. It costs more money every day to hire labor, and so every facet of the business is seeing inflation, he said. We're trying to account for that in our cost strategy and how we price things moving forward. It was a trick last year because pricing was changing so fast. The ink wouldn't be dry on the quote paperwork and you'd almost have to recalculate again if the order was changed because tr prices were changing so fast, he said. Van Gorp had been absorbing fuel surcharge increases, Canfield said, but, quote, Lately, we have found that we can no longer do that, and so we're having a lot of difficult conversations with customers, explaining that not only do we have to raise prices for these other items, such as the actual cost of the materials, but we're also having to factor in the cost for fuel surcharges and freight. Some customers, in response, have begun to delay proceeding on contracts for replacing their conveyor systems, and a few companies have indefinitely postponed projects, he said. We still have a very strong backlog, Canfield said, noting that to handle its current orders, the company expects to increase its workforce. Currently at 70 workers, by about 10 additional employees. However, he said, we're starting to see that type of conversation, and that's really popped up to be more prevalent in the last two to three months. Asked about strategies for mitigating higher costs, Canfield said his company is factoring greater shipping delays into its inventory calculations to carry more inventory to cover longer replenishment windows. Obviously, our procurement department is very busy continuously trying to source product and find new stable sources, and that is a challenge because there's such a lack of inventory within the supply chain, he said. Onshoring more raw materials from North American suppliers rather than from overseas is a consideration, but a challenging one, Canfield said. When we talk to many suppliers, they echo those same sentiments about workforce shortages, raw material challenges, and inflation, all of those similar constraints that we're facing. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, June 10th, 2022 
on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. From the Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business. Business leaders list tax reform as top accomplishment during 2022 session by Michael Crum. As the 2022 legislative session gaveled out in May, business leaders were touting the accomplishments they say will make Iowa a more attractive place to live, work, play, and do business. This year's session came to an end early on May 25th, and we wanted to take a look at those things that were approved by lawmakers that could directly affect the state's business community. A bill that would lower the personal income tax and make it a flat rate and would lower the state's corporate tax rate was touted by business leaders as a big win coming out of the 2022 session. There was another tax reform measure that equalized the tax structure between banks and credit unions and formalized a practice already in place in how different operations within food manufacturers are taxed. There were also strides made on some workforce issues. Business leaders say a bill that reformed the state's unemployment system will help get people back to work faster at a time when the state is facing a labor shortage. The bill reduced the number of weeks someone can collect unemployment benefits from 26 to 16, a reporting mechanism for work-based learning programs, and a training program for work-based learning program administrators was also approved this year. There were two child care bills that passed that, while not everyone agreed on their benefits, business leaders said will help make child care more accessible. We spoke with Joe Murphy, Executive Director of the Iowa Business Council, J.D. Davis, Vice President of Public Policy for the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, and Dustin Miller, Executive Director of the Iowa Chamber Alliance, to get their takeaways from the 2022 session. Unanimously, they listed the personal income tax and corporate tax reform measure as the number one accomplishment during the session that will help attract companies and people to Iowa and retain those who are already here. We're going to have one of the lowest rates in the country, and that just levels the playing field when you're trying to compete with places that might be low-tax, plus have other amenities like oceans, mountains, weather, things like that, Miller said. Here's some of what Miller and the others had to say about taxes and other issues coming out of the 2022 session. Taxes. Murphy. Setting us up for a path toward a flat corporate tax rate is significant. And on the individual side, going to a flat tax as well will really help us as we try to expand our workforce development and expand opportunities for Iowans throughout the state. Davis. That it's going to be a flat tax and very predictable is going to be a great enhancement as it becomes enacted. Many ABI members on their business side are set up as a pass-through organization, so their profit is coming as personal income, so they'll be going down that track of reduction on the personal income tax side. Many of our members are also having store employee stock ownership programs, so that's a great piece in there 
making businesses more attractive for people to plan a long-term career if they know how their retirement is going to be treated when they get out and they're not going to have any taxes on the capital gains of those shares of the companies they're going to hold. On the corporate tax side, getting to a flat tax is a very good idea. And then the elimination of taxes on retirement. We really like the idea of how that is going to treat employees as they retire, and we think they'll more likely stay in communities, and that will be helpful. The other tax bill. Davis. It took care of problems we needed to iron out in certain industries. There was a tax equity issue in the tax levels between banks and credit unions. They're in the same marketplace, serving the same folks, and they had a different tax burden. That was addressed by the reduction of the franchise tax to get parity there to bring banks and credit in line with one another. They figured out how to solve that by a rate adjustment for the banks. There was also an administrative rule that tried to clarify what had been years and years of interpretation for companies in the business of manufacturing foods for human consumption. Not everything in that stream goes to people. Sometimes it's alcohol or oil or animal feed. Once that rule got on paper, everyone believed it would increase taxes on companies and expose more of their operations to taxation that was not taxed. So the legislature and revenue department worked together to get it into legislation so that we understand what taxes are for which consumable foods. And it gives a great deal of stability to the law for the people in that business. Unemployment. Davis. It was highlighted by the governor converting federal COVID relief dollars into 18 new positions at workforce development to help people who find themselves newly unemployed and get them caseworkers in that first week and get them back in the workforce. That was complemented by what she proposed and the legislature approved as far as unemployment reform, with shortening up the time frame for the period of unemployment, which helped shore up the unemployment trust fund. This really takes care of that overhanging threat of any of the events in the future and any economic downturns putting pressure on the fund and employers. Work-Based Learning Murphy The legislature adopted requirements for school districts to report work-based learning opportunities within their district. They're finally going to collect that data at the Department of Education so we have a better holistic idea of what's going on throughout our state. They also provided a pathway for individuals to become certified as work-based learning supervisors. So that's a really good thing, I think, for the state. It's a really great step forward on broader workplace learning policies that I think will be very beneficial not only soon, but sets a great foundation for growth as well. Davis this is where employers and school districts work together on workforce opportunities for high school credit. One of the bottlenecks was that we relied heavily on school personnel to oversee these programs, and that can really stress staff. We couldn't just use somebody in the workforce to administer these programs. So there's a training component over two years for anybody that could be identified as one of these facilitators. The program existed and is working well, 
But we wanted to make this change so that if it's a personnel issue that's keeping this program from being stood up, they can happen. Future Ready Iowa. Murphy. They expanded eligibility for the last dollar scholarship program to include part-time students, which I think is a really good opportunity for people who are maybe working full-time and going to school part-time to take advantage of a scholarship opportunity that the state is putting money into to help enhance and upskill our workforce. Child care. Murphy. The fact child care continues to be a barrier for so many people, having a bill that provides more flexibility and options to providers on ratios so they can expand their workforce a little bit, and then giving them the option to hire and have a 16-year-old supervise as well, I think anytime we can provide flexibility for these centers that are just starving for something that is good and affordable. I know some groups disagree with that policy concept, but I think we were at a point where we needed to get creative and figure something out, and we were happy to see that go through. I think this will be a broad policy initiative for the state for the foreseeable future, and I'm really hopeful that we will continue to have conversations and that the legislature will be thoughtful in how they address this problem. Miller. Child care is very similar to the talent attraction piece. It's very easy to get myopic and look at one single little thing that gets changed rather than the holistic scope. We've been pushing the statehouse to move child care away from a human services viewpoint to a workforce issue. It has to be a multi-pronged approach. Placemaking. Miller. Our folks are really excited about the governor using $100 million of American Rescue Plan Act funds for Destination Iowa. Because one thing you'll hear from us repeatedly is, to get workforce, you have to make attractive communities where people want to work, live, and play. And more effort can be done there. Looking ahead to 2023. Davis. We schedule a series of listening posts where we go out and do a legislative roundtable and talk about what got done this year. But we turn the conversation very quickly to what, are, what we are hearing. What do you need? Then in August, we take it through the five issue committees that have experts that are ABI members, and they put it in front of our board of directors, and that board decides how we move forward. So we're looking for input from members, but we can predict we haven't solved all the workforce issues. With the speed with which some of the tax bill was considered this year, it's going to have people coming back and revisiting some of the tax issues that have been worked on. And there will be environmental issues. Murphy. I think in broad terms, the state needs to continue to look at population growth as a critical need area for policy making so we continue to be a welcoming and inclusive place for all people, and then thinking creatively and deliberately and strategically on what are policies we can put into place that will attract people to Iowa. How can we get more people to stay here, but more importantly, move to Iowa? That's going to be a key focus for us moving into the summer and fall, and that tails right into our broader workforce development strategies and areas of focus.
and Miller. We had some wins on workforce this year, but that will continue to be a challenge for us. We're going to see more of a push on housing and childcare. The talent attraction piece is the number one issue. When you poll our members now, supply chain creeps up there, but they're still not finding folks, and it's such an exacerbated problem. It's low, medium, high skill. It's everybody on desk, and that's something we're going to work on. When you're talking about what makes somebody decide to move to a community or stay in that community, it comes to childcare, student debt, and housing. And are there ways to incentivize people to have that connection and target specific sectors that are important to us? Target specific employee types and the levels they're in. And it will also be the placemaking and community attraction side of things. Those will be our primary efforts moving forward. Our next story, Apple Data Center, Costco, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, among projects issued building permits in April. Building permits were issued in April for 30 new Des Moines area commercial projects, including the much-anticipated Apple Inc. data center development in Waukee, a Costco members-only retail store in Ankeny, and a mixed-use project in West Des Moines that will include Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. The value of the 30 new commercial permits totaled more than $203.8 million, a review showed. Between January 1st and April 30th, 63 new commercial building permits valued at more than $496.5 million were issued by 13 area communities and Polk County. In the first four months of 2021, 58 new commercial building permits valued at over $565.8 million were issued. Highlights from April's commercial building permit review include a permit valued at $6.7 million issued for the construction of the first data center in Apple Inc.'s campus in Waukee. The Waukee City Council earlier this year approved the site plan for the project which, when completed, is expected to be valued at $1.3 billion. Apple, the Cupertino, California-based company behind products like iPhones, iPads, and Apple Watches, announced in 2017 that it would construct a state-of-the-art data center in Waukee near the intersection of Hickman Road and S Avenue. The project, however, was delayed. Its first phase includes the construction of a 315,773-square-foot data center. The contractor is Turner Construction Company. Three permits valued at over $21.8 million for the construction of a Costco retail store and fuel pumps that will be located at 4000 Northeast Spectrum Drive in Anquany. Last fall, Ankeny's Planning and Zoning Commission approved a site plan for Costco that includes a 195,000-square-foot facility with a warehouse retail store, tire center, and distribution center. The development will also include a freestanding fuel facility. Costco expects to have the store open by this fall, according to city documents. A permit valued at $47.8 million for the construction of a four-story mixed-use project that will include a Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, 
apartments, and other retail and commercial spaces. The steakhouse, the project's anchor, is proposed to be located in a one in a 15,000 square foot two-story building with three patios. The project, being co-developed by CRG Residential and Great Lakes Capital, was announced in May 2021 and is located at 950 Jordan Creek Parkway in West Des Moines. A permit valued at $25.5 million for the construction of a five-story mixed-use project that will include retail, restaurant, and office space, and owner-occupied condominiums. The project, called Jordan Creek Tower, is located at 595 South 60th Street in West Des Moines. Construction is expected to take up to 17 months. DRA Properties is the project's master developer. Keen Project Solutions is the general contractor. The building was designed by Simonson and Associates. A permit valued at $5.3 million for the construction of an 11,300-square-foot building in which Cooper's Hawk Winery and Restaurant will be located. The building for the restaurant, headquartered in Orland Park, Illinois, is being built at 12801 University Avenue in Clive on the site once occupied by Granite City Food and Brewery. And a permit valued at $4 million for the construction of a 51,355-square-foot production facility at PDM Precast's campus at 3312 East Granger Avenue in Des Moines. Construction is expected to be completed in the fall. To find commercial building permits issued for projects valued at $250,000 or more, go to bit.ly forward slash 3 lowercase, lowercase t lowercase g, the number 8, and all caps NSL. Our next story, Growing Up in the Digital Age, Needing Mental Health Resources, Tech Adds Support in Schools, by Sarah Bogards. Today's students are in the unique position of being a generation growing up in the digital age whose relationship to technology has also been transformed by the pandemic. While many are naturally adept at figuring out how devices function, school districts are trying new technologies that can help students and parents better understand and discuss mental health and the responsible use of technology. Jennifer Yuli Wells, Executive Director of Please Pass the Love, a nonprofit advocating for youth mental health, said she has seen numerous area districts implementing behavioral health technologies to ensure student safety, especially toward the beginning of the pandemic when students were not in school. The pandemic led to an exacerbation of students' mental health needs and the need for a comprehensive system of resources, Yuli Wells said, which has also meant a continuation of the workforce development issue among mental health professions. With fewer than 30 active child psychiatrists working in the state of Iowa, she said behavioral health technologies are, quote, a good tool to leverage, end quote, to support youths and educators. 
while we would love to say that tomorrow Iowa is going to have 1,000 people show up ready to do mental health for us, there are a couple of issues, she said. The Waukee Community School District started working with Securely, a student wellness company, using its web filter capability to classify permitted websites in 2020. Yuli Wells said Securely and companies like it have adapted the filtering tool to check for signs that students could be facing a mental health challenge. District staff worked with Securely to identify words and phrases that, when searched or sent in a message on a district-owned device, school counselors and administrators receive an alert in real time, including outside of school hours. They also set up different levels of alerts that can help the school staff determine the best response. Haley Steffensmeyer, a counselor at Waukee's South Middle School, said engaging with students in conversation about their mental health has been the main outcome from Securely so far. It has added an extra layer of support to everything that I try to do in person every day. But also knowing, with how connected our kids are, that we have this service that's helping us. There's no silver bullet. There's nothing perfect that is out there. But we are, so far, happy with the things that it has alerted us to, she said. It's at least opened up some dialogue with students and parents that we wouldn't have even known needed to be happening, she said. Student Services Advisor Brett Whittle said each alert and initial conversation with students is treated with seriousness, given the lack of context that comes with written electronic communication. Cases that turn out to not involve a mental health need can be opportunities to discuss digital citizenship. Sometimes, even when they're sending it to friends, friends might not be able to know the context either, Whittle said. It's one of those things for them to be mindful of as they continue to get older and have more freedom, freedoms and responsibilities with that technology, he said. A more frequent use of Securely in the district is a weekly report parents can receive detailing what their child searched or watched on their device, which Steffensmeyer said is often a way for parents to connect with students about what they're learning. Whittle said some parents were unsure about using Securely at first, but after learning how it works, it has started to provide them more peace of mind. For parents wary about new technologies in schools, Yuli Wells said that's where it's important to build a trusting relationship with educators to look after the best interest of their students while at school. People have to continue to have that faith because in these situations, we don't want to create more barriers to getting help, she said. However, she also said some caution can help prevent potential harm, as not all of the available behavioral health apps and technologies are based on scientific research and evidence. Although this wild, wide range of technologies and their features, like chats, is more unfamiliar to parents, they are an everyday language for students and could serve a larger role in helping them engage with and manage their thoughts and emotions. Despite the negative effects of the pandemic on students' mental health, it has perhaps influenced some of their interactions around mental health for the better. Steffensmeyer said, 
Supportive email conversations with students is becoming the more comfortable way for many to reach out and seek help. Additionally, as students saw all their classmates dealing with the pandemic, Whittle said it normalized conversations about mental health. Please Pass the Love is currently running its own behavioral health technology pilot program where high school students are testing five apps focusing on different aspects of mental health management and reporting their feedback. Yuli Wells said new apps and technologies are constantly being developed, but that one of the more considerable shifts is the change in perspective on technology's role in a comprehensive mental health support system. I think if people are doing it right, they're looking at it as an opportunity, not a challenge, she said. How do we really reimagine everything from education to mental health to children's mental health to everything we do and that should be a question we're asking ourselves? What do we need to be doing to be more streamlined, to have a wider reach, to be more rig rigorous? And I think technology provides that, she said. And finally, very briefly, historic North Des Moines building to undergo $4.3 million restoration. In the past three years or so, a renaissance has occurred along 6th Avenue in Des Moines' Highland Park-Oak Park neighborhoods with the renovation and repurposing of decades-old buildings. That resurgence has turned the corner, literally, expanding eastward along Euclid Avenue. Work is expected to begin in July on a $4.3 million restoration of a distinctive-looking two-story brick building at 413 Euclid Avenue that for decades was home to French Way cleaners and dyers. Connor Delaney, manager of Euclid Foresight LLC, is partnering with Danny Hagen and Brandon Folds of DEV Partners to renovate the structure located on the nearly half-acre site. The structure includes the original two-story building constructed in 1924, another building erected in the 1930s, and several additions. Restoration is expected to be completed by May 2023. And that does it for today's reading of the Business Record for Friday, June 10th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.